You're listening to the Miscarriage Doula Podcast. I'm your host, Arden Cartret. This space is meant to be a tool for you to feel less alone and to learn more about how to get through what you've been through and what you're probably going through. We'll hear diverse stories from women and men in the online space, experts, and people just like you and me who are feeling the effects of miscarriage and loss in real time. This is the Miscarriage Doula Podcast. And I would love for you to start with a brief background of your story. You can start wherever you can, you know, just share your general history uh, leading into your second um, pregnancy and loss or wherever you'd like to start. All right. Um, Yeah. So my husband and I started um, trying to conceive back in spring 2017. Um, not knowing, you know, that anything would be wrong or anything like that. Um, I was in my late twenties and, you know, I think around the six month mark is when I started thinking there might be something wrong. Um, after especially charting my cycles and doing basal body temperature, tracking ovulation, all of that. And we spoke with our, uh, GP, our family doctor, and he, you know, advised keep having sex every two to three days, which can I just say is some of the worst advice I've ever had, because that can be really hard when you're yeah. trying to conceive for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. And said, you know, come back to me in a few more months. We can always run some tests. I can, you know, refer you to a fertility clinic to run some tests. They're really well suited to do like everything you need to check instead of me trying to run labs for you and semen analyses and things like that. So we gave it a few more months and close to the one year mark that we had been trying, I asked for a referral to a fertility clinic. And the, you know, referral came through and it was going to be months before we had an appointment. And so I actually found like another fertility clinic that I could get an appointment quicker. So we did our diagnostic testing and everything kind of came back as like unexplained infertility um, other than like a small polyp in my uterus. And so I think at the time I was still thinking, you know, maybe we give it a, a little bit more time. So we kept trying and, and we did go to that second fertility clinic that our GP had originally referred us to. And um, they kind of had the same thing, like looked at our records from those initial testing and said, you know, you can probably if you kept trying, it might work out for you. It might take a long time. So if you're ready to start treatment, we can do that. We recommend removing the polyp and then, you know, starting with intrauterine insemination, starting with IUIs. Um, By some stroke of luck, the polyp had disappeared on its own when we did another saline sonogram. So I did not have to have a hysteroscopy to remove it. Um, And we were ready to start um, IUI. So by that point, we had been trying for about a year and a half. And we only did a couple IUI cycles that were not successful before we moved on to IVF. Um, And then, yeah, we did that, like our first IVF cycle um, had okay results in terms of um, how many embryos we got. I won't get into too much detail about like the the whole infertility and and all of our IVFs and stuff, but um, it was 
a transfer from that initial IVF cycle that led to our first pregnancy and first miscarriage. Um, and then we decided to do another IVF cycle where we got no normal embryos. We switched clinics, um, did a couple more IVF cycles, and then um, we, we did a couple transfers at that clinic. And our, um, our first transfer at our second clinic um, was, uh, was a miscarriage as well. So that's kind of like over about, you know, two to three years, um, a couple IUI cycles, four IVF retrievals, a couple transfers and losses, um, and then a third transfer that has led to my current pregnancy. Hey, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I want to give a little backstory that you had this great idea to talk about your positive experience with your RE after you experience your second miscarriage because a lot of women share their horrible stories and it's a little scary and frightening for newcomers to the you know infertility and loss space who go and see an RE and they think that they're just a number and sometimes I don't think that they are just a number um you know some doctors care more than others just like any other profession some people care more than about what they're doing. Um, so I thought that was a really great idea. And I'm so thankful to have you on the show today. How did that care compare to the care from your first loss? So your first loss was at a different clinic from your second loss. Yes. Can you compare yeah. how you were treated at the first one and the second one? Yeah, same. All right. I'll talk to you later, Sarah. Have a good evening. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. So um, maybe I can start with how things went with my, um, with my second loss and, and give a little bit more detail about that one. Um, you know, we want to maybe focus on that more positive experience and then just contrasting for me, it was such a like yeah. worlds apart. Um so with our, so with that pregnancy, um, maybe I think I'll give a bit of around timing because I think it's, uh, it can, it can be important. Um, so it was, it was a transfer that we did after, uh, sorry, after the um, fertility clinic had started doing treatments again, um, after some closures for COVID. So we did our two IVF cycles in January and February, 2020, and then everything shut down in March, 2020, of course. So we did not know when we would be able to transfer again. And around like end of April or May, we got you know a call at, from our fertility clinic saying that we would be able to do a transfer whenever we were ready. And also with a little bit of like, maybe don't wait too long because we might get dizzy again and then you might not be able to get in. <laughs> So there was a bit of right. pressure um, and it, we, and we felt ready. So we did that. So we had a, we did a transfer in May, 2020 and we um, yeah, so did that transfer. Things seemed to go fine. Um, the betas were rising, beta HCG levels were rising. So, you know, okay, great. Confirmed a pregnancy. Um, but the betas were not like, beautifully doubling every two days every you know they were like a little bit slow so our reproductive endocrinologist had me come in at um uh 
five weeks and six days, which is pretty early to do a first ultrasound. Some clinics do it around five and a half weeks. Some clinics wait until seven and a half weeks. So for me, this was much earlier than I had um, done for a previous pregnancy. I was a bit nervous about that because I know that so early, sometimes you can't see a lot and then it makes people nervous. And then, you know, it, it can be really difficult. And this was a pregnancy mm -hmm. after loss as well. So I went in for that first ultrasound and we saw a gestational sac, which often just shy of six weeks, that might be the only thing you see. So there was no heartbeat. There wasn't really a fetal pole, but it was early. So initially it was kind of like, well, come back next week. We'll see how things are going. I did another beta and it had continued to increase, but it wasn't, you know, super high numbers. Right. Um, so I went for an ultrasound the following week, um, six weeks, five days, and things seemed to have progressed and they saw like a bit of a fetal pole, but were sort of like difficult to see. Um, and even when I saw on the screen, you know, I had seen before what ultrasounds around that time looked like and it didn't seem like there was much there. So then, you know, spoke with my, um, my doctor and she said, well, you know, we're still seeing progress. So come back next week and we'll, we'll see where things are at. And at the same time, she, she prepared me as well saying, you know, I was basically measuring at least a week behind where we would want to see things at that point. And so she was, she was great. Like crossing her fingers for me, she literally said that keeping my fingers crossed that things will go well and, and continue progressing. And, you know, it might not. And if it doesn't, you know, let's start to think about what that will look like for you. Um, because this is a second loss with it would be maybe a second loss with a genetically normal embryo from an IVF pregnancy. So she was already starting to prepare me for that possibility and what that might look like, which I appreciated at that point. Like she's a straight shooter <laughs> that I really like. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think, you know, emotionally in that moment, those were some really hard weeks, right? Because it's like three weeks in a row where you're just waiting to know whether the pregnancy will continue or not. Um, I was definitely not as attached as with my first pregnancy. And I was very much waiting for the other shoe to drop. So I go back at seven and a half weeks and, or yeah, seven weeks, five days, so almost eight weeks. Um, and I knew that things didn't look good. So the first thing that happened was that the um, ultrasound technician, which I knew from just like knowing the staff, that she was a bit more junior. Um, she told me like, I have to go get someone else to confirm what I'm seeing on the screen. So for the most part, mm -hmm. whenever, you know, whenever they're saying they're gonna get someone else or anything like that, it's usually not a good sign. Right. Um, and so I kind of like laid there for a while. I think it was like at least five to 10 minutes of me like laying on the table, waiting for them to come back, which was, which was a bit difficult, right? I'm just like waiting. Yeah, that's a really um, long time. You would think that they would like run there, you know, to give you an answer. Yeah, definitely. And, and then once they came back in, I understood why it had taken so long. Um, it's because actually they went to get my doctor. 
So the way it works with the fertility clinic that I was at this, my last fertility clinic is that the doctors are part of the monitoring. So when you do your monitoring for an IUI cycle, cycle any cycle monitoring, IVF, um, those early pregnancy scans, it all happens during the time when the doctors are also seeing patients. So you do your ultrasound and you talk to your doctor right away. So they're like on the floor at the same time as all of this is happening, which means they're available. So um, they walked in, the ultrasound technician, the manager of kind of the other, all the ultrasound technicians and my doctor. <laughs> so we're like oh four people gosh. in this little room. <laughs> um, and I was alone, you know, without my husband because of the, of, because of COVID um, and, and restrictions on having support people. Um, and so, you know, my doctor right away was like, it doesn't look good, but let's have a look and let's see kind of what's going on. And they did like a really thorough, like she wanted them to check my tubes and like everything, right? To make sure that the pregnancy wasn't somewhere else. But they were seeing an empty sack at almost eight weeks. Um, and there was no more fetal pole. There was really nothing that they were, no yolk sac um, that they were seeing at all. So, it, you know, I was able to find out, I waited a little bit, but I was able to find out right away what was happening, have my doctor be there to confirm it, um, which was really different than my first experience, which I'll talk about after. And so, you know, that was the first part that was, that felt very compassionate to me, to not have me wait a long time to figure out what was happening. I think this maybe happens more in Canada than in the US where um, the ultrasound technicians are usually the ones doing ultrasounds and they can't really tell you. If there's a, usually if there is a heartbeat, they will show you, but if there isn't, mm -hmm. they can't tell you anything. So often you're sort of left not knowing what's happening in that moment, um, especially if it's bad news. Yeah, that, that's how it is here too. But I think that there's like some level of sonographer. Like, I guess if it's not a technician, it's a sonographer, but you don't really mm. know. It's not like they introduce themselves with their title. So I have had situations where they can't say anything. And then I've had situations where they tell me everything they're seeing in real time. And so it's kind of confusing, but that is a thing here too. Yeah, it can be really confusing. So, so yeah, so that for me was just like the first thing that happened that was, um, that felt really like I was being seen as a human who was losing her baby. Right. Um, and then even in that moment, my doctor said right away, you know, once you're dressed, you're gonna come to this other little room and we're gonna talk and I'm gonna be there waiting for you. And usually what happens at the clinic, like if things are fine, you know, if you see a little heartbeat, they send you back to the waiting room and you wait to be called in and you know, it can take, it can take 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever. So that as well, right? Like not having me go and sit and wait for a while, having me, you know, go directly and speak with my doctor was evidently like the way that they like to do things. And which meant that yeah. her other patients were waiting, right? Like other people had been waiting in the waiting room to see her and I was being kind of like streamlined um, because of the situation. And so the, um, you know, both ultrasound technicians slash the manager 
um, told me they were sorry for what was happening, which doesn't always happen in healthcare settings, right? We don't always get that compassionate, like, we're sorry for your loss. And the technician, like, waited for me to get dressed behind the curtain and, like, literally, like, walked me over to the other room, like, to the um, room where I was going to be speaking with my doctor because it was, like, you know, room six. And I'm, like, where's room six? Right. So, um, yeah, it was, you know, she was by my side and was like right here like you're gonna go over here um and then I called my husband Andre um put him on speakerphone so that he could be part of the conversation with our doctor which was also hard you know definitely not great to not have um him there with me and and then we were able to talk to our doctor right away um I already knew at that point that I wanted to have a DNC, that I wanted to do surgical management um, for the miscarriage. And so we talked a little bit about that. And like, while I was still in the room, my doctor picked up the phone, called the operating room um, at the clinic and like, like got them to schedule it um, for the following week. So That's awesome. Yeah, it was just like very like, we're gonna take care of you. We're here for you. And yeah, it felt um, just very supportive, felt really supportive. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, to give people hope that there are clinics like that, you know, all over, that's very similar to my first miscarriage and how my doctor um, handled things at my first scan. They're a part of the first scan, but they're not a part of second or like third monitoring scans, unless there's a problem. Um, and then he walked us to the financial department to talk about the cost of all three options, because that was a concern for us. And so I remember them not making me check out where, you know, everybody else was checking out and they did the whole privacy thing. Um, they gave us time. So I definitely, that was my experience too, with my direct doctor. So there are doctors that do really care about what they're doing and they're in this, you know, because they want to help people make babies. And when it doesn't go that way, they, you know, I, I feel like most humans would feel really sad for their patient. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And obviously they have set up their patient flows or even just the way that they work together with the nurses, the ultrasound techs, whoever, you know, are doing the scans to make sure that they can just be flexible um, and, and accommodate when things don't go right. And it often happens that things don't go right in a fertility clinic, um, which is- That's what my fertility something... doctor told me. Right. Yeah. Because I was like, when you start great. Now that... no, right. Sorry. I didn't, <laughs> didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, you we all know this, the uh, statistic of like 1% of people- have recurrent pregnancy loss or something like that. And so I remember bringing, or maybe it's like 0.1, it's a very low percentage. And I remember bringing that up to him and he was like, no, a lot of patients here have two, three or four miscarriages. Like it's really common. And again, like I always say, it can be common and not normal, but he said that he sees loss all the time. And I think that almost made me feel better, which is such a weird I don't know. It's, it's horrible that that made me feel better, but, um, I felt less like a low statistic, I guess. Yeah. And less alone. Right. And knowing that, 
your your doctor your care providers know how to provide this care and that it's not something um, that never happens and you're sort of like left to figure it out on your own I think is really important um, there's there's also a second piece of of how the miscarriage management went that I think I'd like to to speak about um, again because of how different it was for me with my first experience and that is that you know so I went home after that and my doctor did advise me that I could stop my medication. It was an IVF um, cycle. You know, I had been a frozen embryo transfer, so I was on estrogen and progesterone. So I did stop my medication. In hindsight, I would have probably kept taking progesterone for a few more days. Um, you know, and this is just me sharing my experience, not telling people what they should do. But especially when a DNC has been scheduled for a few days or a week later, it is possible for the miscarriage to start on its own. And some people want that and they, they're like, they want to get the opportunity to perhaps not need a surgery. And some people really don't want that to happen. And I think sometimes doctors forget to tell people that it could start as soon as you finish, like as soon as you stop taking your medication, if your body's ready, the miscarriage can start on its own. Um, so, that is what happened in my case. It didn't start like the same day, but I started spotting the day after. And by two days later, I guess like the third day later, um, it was like, you know, day one of my cycle. And when I had scheduled the DNC with the nurse, I had asked what happens if I start bleeding before and they had said, well, call us and maybe we'll have you come in for an ultrasound and we'll see. So I, I called and asked um, to come in for an ultrasound because I, was, I had started bleeding quite a lot. And so they said, like, yeah, absolutely, come in today, um, your ultrasound, see your doctor, and then we'll go from there. So I left for the clinic, um, actually, you know, thinking that I might have a DNC that day. So I had called pretty early in the morning and I hadn't had breakfast yet. So I didn't eat in case I needed to not have eaten to be sedated. Um, I almost forgot about that piece, but I um, kind of had that in my mind. I don't think they would have refused to, to provide me sedation, but I just knew that usually they prefer that you've been fasting. So I left for the clinic um, again, it's the pandemic, so I'm heading out there by myself. And I got, so um, I had the ultrasound with actually the like ultrasound manager. And she, you know, confirmed that it seemed like the miscarriage had started, but it certainly wasn't complete. So like the gestational sac was still there. And um, she said, you know, I'll write this report for your doctor and you know, you'll see her and, and then you'll, you'll make plans for what to do next. And at my fertility clinic, you have to sign clipboards. So you have to like sign in on a clipboard for ultrasound. You have to sign in on a clipboard to your doctor. And I mentioned this because of course, in my kind of like mindset of like losing my baby, bleeding, I signed in on the ultrasound clipboard and I forgot to sign in on my doctor's clipboard. So that means that they didn't know to tell her I was there waiting for her. Mm -hmm. So I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. And then texting my husband, he's like, you've been waiting a while. 
like, yeah, I guess I have. And then I see the person who did my ultrasound and she's like, you're still waiting. I'm like, yeah, she's like, go talk to, you know, admin and, and tell them you're still waiting. And at that point, like, I'm bleeding a lot. Like I'm feeling tissue passing, um, sitting in this waiting room. And at this point, I mean, even like, you know, when you're like afraid to move, you're like, you think there's going to be baby blood everywhere. Like it was, you know, I was starting to get uncomfortable. And so yeah. I go up to the desk and then I realize I hadn't signed in. I tell them, you know, like, I forgot to sign in. I've just put my name. Can you tell my doctor I'm here? And then I'm still waiting around. It seems like it's a new person. They don't really know. So then I kind of like interrupt some, like another receptionist who like has been there a long time and say like, I really need to see my doctor. Like, I'm, I'm miscarrying right now, right? And so, and at that point, I kind of like have a meltdown, just like there are other people around. I start crying. Um, the admin is like, come this way. And one of the nurses comes and is like, I'll handle this, like brings me into a room and is like, what's wrong? Like, what's going on? You know, just like trying to take care of me. And then my doctor like arrives and it's like, they just told me you were here. I'm so sorry, you've been waiting. And, you know, then I, I just tell her like, I'm bleeding so much right now. And she's like, let's like, let's have, let's do an under, another ultrasound to see what's going on. And, you know, I even like show her the contents of my pad and she's like, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, um, which like felt also just really reassuring that I could do that with my provider and, you know, so she gets one of the ultrasound technicians, like she's there in the room um, and they, you know, confirm like, yeah, the miscarriage is happening, but it's not complete. So she calls the OR right away and says like, I need to get this patient in today. We have to make space for her. I'm not letting her go home bleeding like this. And it was- That's awesome. Like, you know, and I've, I've had some people tell me like that was correct medical practice, right? Like yes <laughs> have let you go and at the same mm -hmm. time it was like it felt like she was moving everything for me right like that she was um doing everything to advocate for me and make sure that I got the care I needed and that just doesn't always happen it really totally does. uh I was almost sent home from the ER in that exact situation borderline needing a blood transfusion. They were like, you're probably okay if you just want to take more Cytotec whenever you get home. And I said, no, I would like a DNC before I go home. Like, yeah. uh, cause your first loss, you took Cytotec as well. Right. If I remember I did. correctly. Yeah. And is that why you wanted the DNC the second time around? It is. Um, it is part of why I wanted the DNC a second time around. Yeah. Um, with my, with my first loss, um, we, so I, I did, um, I did take Cytotec or Mesoprostol and it really wasn't a bad experience for me. So, you know, I also know a, a bit about your experience, Arden, and, and some other people who either are, you know, have lots of bleeding are in terrible pain. Um, it, it can be really terrible. My experience was okay at home when I took Mesoprostol. However, it, it also wasn't, my miscarriage wasn't complete with that first kind of 
dose. I mean, I took, I took it twice within uh, like a 24 hour period. I had like a little bit of fluid and tissue left. So I had, did have to take a second dose a couple weeks later. And I had bleeding for 65 days from that miscarriage. So see, that still sounds it. terrible. So rather it's our good. experiences are exactly the same. Like, it's just a oh, horrible, I feel like people either like hemorrhage blood or their body like is still holding on to where you have to keep taking it. And it's just like, it's just a miserable recovery. It, it really yeah. is. It, I mean, that like bleeding for 65 days, I remember feeling like free whenever my bleeding stopped. Like I can't imagine bleeding for 65 days after a miscarriage. Yeah. And it was, it also wasn't completely linear or the same. It, you know, it decreased and then started up again. Part of me thinks Mm -hmm. that I might have had a period in there, but it was so hard to tell because it was sort of like the bleeding never stopped and then it got heavier and then it got lighter and then it got heavier. Um, and there was a lot of clotting. It seemed like it was tissue, but it wasn't like my uterus was empty. So mm-hmm. it might even have been like uterine lining that was shedding like very fast. It was a very strange experience to be honest. Yeah. And the one thing that I had a really hard time with, and again, like contrasting my experience with that miscarriage and with the second one was that my reproductive endocrinologist at that other clinic um, really didn't follow up. I had to advocate for myself a lot to receive any kind of follow-up while I kept bleeding week after week after week. They didn't even offer to do a repeat beta HCG to make it sure it had gone down. They didn't offer to do ultrasounds. I had to say like, don't I need an ultrasound? If I'm still bleeding and we're not sure my uterus is empty at this point. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like I had to really ask for like, what, what other options do we have? Um, and I, the bleeding did not stop on its own. I was on birth control for 21 days before it stopped. That is so crazy. Did they ever yeah. do an ultrasound? They did. Yeah. So like we knew at that point that my, that my, the miscarriage was complete, but I was still mm-hmm. bleeding. Yeah, I wonder, I I'm not a doctor. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not a doctor, but I feel like I have like an honorary degree from this uh, community. But I wonder if you had retained tissue that was just couldn't be picked up on the ultrasound because of the bleeding. I mean, maybe, maybe, right? You know? It's, yeah. And it's really hard to know. I, you know, with that one, I did the, I, I guess it had been um, probably about a month and a half or so and my beta HCG was back down to zero. It looked like my uterus was empty. Although actually, I even think that last ultrasound, there was a bit of fluid. Like they could see that there was a bit of something, but also I was bleeding a lot. And right. so that's when my doctor said, take birth control for like 10 days, you know, in five days, birth you're control fixes stop. everything. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I took the birth control like a week later, I was still bleeding emailed and was like should I keep taking it and they were like yeah I keep taking it and like I took the full 21 days and then finally it stopped and then 30 days later I got a day one as like my normal day one and that was like three months after my miscarriage 
that is a really similar experience to a friend of mine who I know will listen to this episode. So she'll know that I'm talking about her, but she, um, she kept bleeding, but she bled heavy and like past tissue to where it almost looked like she was constantly miscarrying for weeks. And so she had to really push, um, for, for any answers, they kept telling her that the birth control she was on because they also started her on birth control was causing the bleeding. But even from like my knowledge of how birth control works, I kept telling her like, that's not how birth control works. It doesn't make you bleed. And, and so it was just, it was a, a lot of back and forth and she had to have a surgery anyway, um, for a septum removal and they found retained tissue that was causing her uterus was angry. Like it was trying to get something out that wasn't coming out. And so that's why she was bleeding like that. Um, but every time, I mean, she reached out to her doctor multiple times, like this bleeding is a lot. And my miscarriage was three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Um, she went to the ER a couple of times, I think. And it's just like, nobody caught on to that. And it's insane to me. Yeah. I mean, I think, and that's the experience I didn't want to have again. Um, even right. if this time I felt a lot more confident that my doctor would follow up with me and that um, I would be able to get the care I needed. I still like, did, I just didn't want two months of bleeding and, you know, and, and just like how much that would delay like all of our next steps in terms of testing and moving on to another transfer cycle. Uh, I just really didn't want that. And I didn't want that being part of my emotional recovery because, you know, I think as you were mentioning earlier, when you keep bleeding, like you just feel like it's never ending. It's torture. Yeah. And like, well, and I will say, like whenever you give birth to your rainbow baby, you're going to feel so prepared for postpartum because postpartum was really triggering for me, but, um, it was triggering because it was so familiar and it was a lot like my miscarriage bleeding, which actually validated my grief a lot. Like it validated that I once went through postpartum with those pregnancies. Um, so it was horrible. I mean, it's not fun, but you have a baby, you know, in the end. And so it's better than the first time around, but you kind of stop and think like, I've been here before. I know what to do. I know the paths to buy. I know that I should buy adult diapers because the bleeding can be heavy. And it's, it's almost familiar. It's, it's a little weird, but you handle it so much better because you've been there. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember actually going leaving the fertility clinic when we found out about our first mis- miscarriage, knowing, you know, I was going to take mesoprostol and literally pulling up your um, blog post on like how to prepare to have a miscarriage at home, like walking to the pharmacy, you know, to the drugstore and buying like everything you had on your list yeah. um, to prepare. And I think that was very helpful for me. And I think I told I'm you good. at the time, probably wrote to you and was like, thank you for mm-hmm. this. Um, but yeah, like that experience of like having the miscarriage of the recovery of such a lack of follow-up and even the way we found out about that first miscarriage was, you know, in between having the ultrasound and and seeing our doctor was about an hour waiting in the waiting room, like sobbing because the ultrasound technician had said like, just go talk to your doctor and hadn't shown the screen and you know, again, that contrast of we saw a heartbeat at seven and a half weeks, my husband came in the room, they showed us, and then at nine and a half weeks, didn't show me the screen, didn't say anything, 
and said like go talk to your doctor um yeah it was you know it was just horrible it's just a matter of picking up on social cues which a good portion of the population can do and it's weird because I've worked in the medical field and in all my training um it's very 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 pushed that you are not to let on that something is wrong like with your language your body language or anything like that or like you're not supposed to come off as judgmental for reasons that patients come in and so I was always really careful about that like at our job I did we did EKGs and we had a couple people like having minor heart attacks and like, didn't even know it. And so like, you have to kind of keep your cool and like, I'll be right back. I'm just going to go show the doctor. Um, Cause the doctor has to sign off before I stop or something like that. Um, so it's always so odd to me when like the texts are just like, I'll be right back. I have to go get your doctor. But if it's good news, they don't do the same thing. Like at least be consistent, you know, don't tell yeah. any news if, if you can't. Yeah. And I know that some people who have been through loss choose to ask the technicians or whoever's doing the ultrasound not to tell them anything because they Mm -hmm. don't want that discrepancy. Like they don't want on the one hand, if it's good news, you know, that first ultrasound, you see the good news. And then that second one, they tell you nothing. Uh, And I really understand that because it can be incredibly hard when you can't know the information right away right like when they're not saying let me go like I have to go get your doctor or you're going to go talk to your doctor right away um and for us that was just excruciating and when we walked into for the for the first loss when we walked into our doctor's um office like she didn't she hadn't looked at our chart yet like she didn't know that we were probably having a loss either so she was like looking at it on her computer as we sat down and just that whole experience like has, you know, I, part of the reason that we switched clinics, there were a few reasons, but one of them was that I couldn't imagine having a pregnancy there again. I just yeah. didn't feel like I would get the monitoring and care that I deserved and wanted. Good for you, because I think that a lot of people don't realize that they have the options to fire their doctors or to, you know, go somewhere else. I know that it's daunting to have to find another doctor or to transfer embryos or to think about, you know, going and quote unquote, starting over, but it's worth it for your sanity. And I actually tell people um, whenever they share bad OB experiences, I tell them like, find a new OB for your next pregnancy because Like at least at fertility clinics, you graduate. You're not there your entire pregnancy. Um, With OBs, like you have to go there every few weeks. And so pregnancy after loss is hard and you kind of have to plan ahead and eliminate those triggers whenever you can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some people for sure in some areas don't have as many options. And we were lucky to be in Toronto where there are many, many fertility clinics and each fertility clinic has lots of doctors So we had options and we were grateful for that and took advantage of it. Right. And um, yeah, yeah, some people don't have those options. And then you get into sort of figuring out, I was talking to someone recently about um, their OB and, and their experience they're having and kind of saying, if you feel like you can't really switch, who else can you surround yourself with? You know, can you Mm -hmm. have a doula who's going to help with the information needs that maybe you're not having 
like aren't being met by your OB. Can you, you know, if, and even in fertility, right? When we have, like my reproductive endocrinologist was, was great. I, you know, really love her, but she's not my therapist. Like, she, you know, she's right. not there to provide me with, um, you know, emotional processing and empathy um, through the losses and the difficult times. She's there to provide, like she does provide empathy and she's there to provide the medical care. So I think that's another piece is finding, you know, building that team around you. And some of that is support from people who are going through it. Um, but sometimes it's also adding some more professionals in, in the mix. Happy to be here. And it's always great chatting with you. Sarah, you've given us so much great information uh, and, I, and it really gives people, you know, something to compare their care to if they're questioning, if they're not being treated great. And if they, you know, have the option to um, either switch doctors within the clinic or um, like my doctor was great, but the other doctor in my clinic was horrible. So, you know, so not every, just because one doctor at the clinic is bad doesn't mean all of them are bad too. So that is always an option. Um, mm -hmm. But to close out, I would love if you just gave five things to look for in a doctor, um, you know, and knowing how they would handle a situation like a pregnancy loss. And so I think you've sprinkled them throughout this um, chat, but if you could summarize like the five things that your doctor did that you want others to look out for in a doctor. I think that would be really helpful. Yeah, sure. That sounds great. Um, so I think thinking about like what I learned from going through loss and then having these two different experiences. The one thing I didn't know to ask about when I started at a fertility clinic was what happens when you get pregnant? So I think knowing what they do so how many beta HCG tests you're gonna have, what they're looking for, when your first ultrasound is going to be scheduled, how often they do them. Like just like knowing how they monitor pregnancy. That's like what we're there to achieve, right? So knowing what's actually right. going to happen, I think is, um, would be like my, my first tip. Um, then related to that is how long they actually provide care during the, mm -hmm. the, those early works at weeks of pregnancy. So some clinics I know even um, have, have gone to providing care for a shorter amount of time because of the pandemic, because they're trying to provide care for more people with like restrictions on space and, and how many people are in the clinic. So some clinics who used to follow people a little bit longer are sort of discharging or graduating as soon as the heartbeat is seen. And I have to say for someone who had a missed miscarriage after having seen a heartbeat once, like that's, mm -hmm. you know, that could be really um, uncomfortable for someone who is doing more treatment after loss and is having a pregnancy after loss. Often you don't have a lot of care in those first few weeks if you're graduating to an obstetrician, a midwife, a GP who provides maternity care. So knowing how long you're going to be followed can really help you at least set your expectations. At my um, most recent clinic, they follow through the first trimester. Like I even had an ultrasound there at 14 that. weeks. And they That's did the amazing. prenatal, yeah, prenatal genetic screening was done with my reproductive endocrinologist. Basically like getting me over the hump of all the things that can go wrong in the first trimester and being on my medication for my IVF cycle 
like all of that was handled by my fertility clinic and not sending me off to someone else. That was important to me. It's not important to everyone and that's okay. But knowing what's gonna happen is, is, uh, is helpful. Um, then I'd say, uh, they could be two separate tips or together, um, but knowing what happens if there is a pregnancy loss. So um, in terms of what options they're able to provide, like I think it's great for people to know that they can either, you know, wait to have the miscarriage, um, take mesoprostol or do surgical management. And sometimes there are a couple options for surgical management too. Um, but knowing what your clinic actually offers, like will they give you the cytotech or mesoprostol? Will they give you a prescription? How does that work? Um, will they give you pain medication if they send mm -hmm. you home to have a miscarriage on your own um, or with you know, mesoprostol? Some clinics, are, will, will give you nothing, won't give you a prescription, won't do anything, some will. Um, and sometimes you can talk to your GP. Um, I think I was listening to your first podcast episode and you know, just hearing how your GP had also been involved. So that I think that's mm -hmm. a really good thing if you have one to keep them in the loop and they can provide additional support. But knowing what your fertility clinic and your reproductive endocrinologist offer can help you make sure you have what you need. Um, mm -hmm. And then if you do decide to go with a, with surgical management, a DNC, or if you don't choose that, but you end up needing it, um, right. knowing do they offer it at the clinic, what the costs are, um, mm -hmm. and or if they refer you out and what that looks like. Sometimes I know in Canada, if, you know, from a fertility clinic, if they don't do them on site, some of them don't they refer you to hospital-based um, surgical centers, which then, you know, I mean, here things would be, like the care would be covered, you wouldn't be paying out of pocket, but it means the wait times could be long. So sometimes people are waiting two to three weeks for a DNC. And that's, that's, so that's, too, that's too long, you know, or they're choosing to go to um, an out-of-hospital clinic, which they're abortion clinics. And some of them provide really compassionate care and they do miscarriage management but not everyone's comfortable with that, right? You can maybe get an appointment earlier, but for some people that can be really triggering and that's understandable. So it's just kind of like getting a right. sense from your doctor, if I have a pregnancy, if I have another loss, what are the options for management? Because sometimes in the moment when it happens, you're so overwhelmed with grief that it's really difficult to start to make those decisions and, and do the research. Yeah. Um, and then the Final tip I would have is, especially for someone who's already had a loss, um, is to find out from this reproductive endocrinologist you'll be working with about um, testing that they're open to doing about recurrent pregnancy loss and the types of protocols that they, um, that they will do. So I think there's a lot of variation in terms of when doctors are comfortable or would recommend doing recurrent pregnancy loss testing. In a lot of places, it isn't until after more than three losses. But I think more and more, some places, you know, after two, will do some of the testing. And just knowing what that doctor is comfortable doing and what their recommendations would be can be really helpful too. Yeah, I think that those are great tips. I honestly wish that before I ever got pregnant, when we started at my fertility clinic, I wish I would have asked a lot of these what ifs, and they probably would have thought that. 
was a little crazy for thinking like, well, what if I miscarry? But um, I would have felt more prepared when that actually happened because I felt really rushed. I didn't, couldn't think straight, you know, and it's, it's not a great place to be. Um, so having a doctor that educates us while also, you know, caring for us is really big. Yeah. And I think it's, it's totally fair and understandable that before we've had a pregnancy, we are not thinking about asking miscarriage questions. I was not yeah. there either. You know, I would not have known to ask, do you do DNCs here? Like I, before our first yeah. IVF cycle, like I, it just didn't even occur to me. Whereas once we were kind of thinking of switching clinics, it was like top of my list, you know, right. and, and That's a good point. especially in, in this case where, um, you know, I knew that my doctor would do my procedures and would, would be able to, um, yeah, to provide the care I needed if I needed it. So, you know, if some people can learn from us, the things that we had to learn going through um, some rough patches, I think that's always great. And, and then we give ourselves grace for not knowing what we didn't know. We had no way yeah. of knowing we would need those resources. 100%. Um, I wish I had known, but now, you know, we can teach others and through sharing, you know, this podcast episode, I know that people will learn a lot from it. So thank you so much for your time. Um, it was nice to talk to you again, and it's always nice to get the chance to talk, um, and to hear portions of your story because, you know, following you on Instagram and chatting over Instagram, um, I don't know if I've heard it you know, in full like that, or not totally in full, but you know what I mean? That is quite the ride. <laughs> and is. I know, and I, and I have to add that you are in Canada. So, um, anybody listening in the United States is probably like, you know, why is the wait so long or how can you just, you know, go clinic to clinic. And so here it's not such a terrible wait. Um, I almost think that like they're too available sometimes, in my experience, I could be totally talking out of place, but, um, so I just wanted to mention that of like the whole waiting and the referral, because that is a little different here too. Um, yeah, 